I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Kostya Kennedy, one of our nation's top sports historians, about his new book, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, which came out April 12, 2022, and got huge reviews in the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on May 24, 2022. Enjoy. And now it's my pleasure to introduce my friend Kostya Kennedy. Uh, Kostya, former senior writer at Sports Illustrated, had two prior New York Times bestsellers. The first one on Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. The second on Pete Rose. That's where Kostya and I first became friends. And now the new one, uh, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson came out in April. Huge review in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Uh, and it's it's magnificent. And then finally, we have a book that, in my mind, does justice to my uh, all-time sports hero and one of my two great heroes, Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson. So, Kostya, welcome to Dallas. Thank you, Talmadge. Thank you so much. It's great to be on. Uh, I feel like I know everybody now after we had a minute together <laughs> online. So, thank you. around a little so yeah, yeah. we can all be kind of Sorry. Th- thanks, everybody, for waiting online, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. All right. Well, great. As I mentioned, Kostya, there have been many, many past efforts to write the definitive biography of Jackie Robinson, and in my not-so-humble opinion, none of them have been great. So that was a challenge. Talk about the decision you made to write about this ultimate sports hero and uh, try to pull off something that so many others have tried and, and not hit the mark on. Yeah, well, you know, um, personally, I felt very, it was the book I really personally wanted to do, which if there are other writers in the room, you know, that's sort of step one in the threshold because you're going to spend a lot of time with this subject. You're going to be thinking about it a lot. You're going to be frustrated by it. You're going to be inspired by it, all of those things. So that was the first thing to, to, to cross. Uh, as you mentioned, of course, there's a lot of good things, and I think there's a lot of a, a lot of you know good good books, um, and and of course movies. I felt that there was a way to get at him. I wasn't so interested in doing the whole soup to nuts biography, which had been done, um, and and I wanted a way to look at him in a sort of a little bit more accessible way, um, and to try to sort of try to bring him to life in in see him as he was, sort of without necessarily reciting, progressing every detail of the life, but really seeing him in these four snapshots. So, so that's kind of what it, what it came to. I felt that there was a, a new thing to say about him and a new way to look at him. And I also feel, you know, you mentioned that um, Abraham Lincoln is the hero of yours. There's no shortage of books on Abraham Lincoln, right? But we see, we see Jackie Robinson differently today than we did in 2010, than we did in 1992, and we, uh, so the reader is bringing something new to the game, just as I am. So all that sort of opened the door, and, and then I tried this sort of different approach to, to get there. Mm-hmm. Now, some of you, you all have your books, which is great. In fact, here comes Harlan Crow. We're so glad to see you. <laughs> Harlan, we said thank you for having this wonderful painting moved. 
<laughs> can, can Harlan sit right here? Is that seat empty? Here we go. Great. Harlan meet Costia. Costia meet Harlan. I see you, Harlan. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got four seasons, as you mentioned. And interestingly, when it, most people think about Jackie Robinson, the first season, most people think about 1947, the year he broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball in the 20th century. And yet that's not one of your four seasons. You start with 1946. And people don't realize this, and many people don't. He was the first African-American to integrate the minor leagues in the 20th century. So uh, why did you make the decision to, to start with the minor league as opposed to the major league? Yeah, so just to take half a step back through the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, there are four specific seasons. Um, and it's also metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of Robinson's public and athletic life. So I wanted uh, to look at him in, in distinct seasons. I wanted to see sort of the progression of the man, the progression of the person over time. Um, the last season is, is not an actual baseball season. It's just a year of his life. Um, so to, in, in 46 when he played in Montreal, and as you mentioned, he's playing in the International League, and there was a pretty high level of baseball in those days. There weren't as many minor leagues. There were obviously much fewer players in the major leagues. Montreal was the top farm club of the, uh, of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and, and I felt it was, even though there had been a fair amount of work on Robinson, a, a pretty underreported time. And he was the only black player in an all-white league. For a brief period of time, he had a, a black teammate, um, who just didn't make it on the on baseball merits? He ultimately wasn't good enough, and so um, and then another another teammate very briefly. But for most of that year, he was alone. He was alone. He actually was not entirely alone because he was with Rachel, um, who he had just married. His wife, who was still with us, and was married to him for fifty years. Um, and so uh, when 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 that year came. It was all new to Robinson, new to Jackie. He'd been a successful athlete at UCLA, but this idea of being sort of the person who everybody was looking at and walking around Montreal and being in the neighborhood and having people come by, people from the African-American community, from the Jewish community, from the Catholic community, anybody, and say, oh, this is where he lives, being that kind of celebrity and be doing what he was doing was a crucial, crucial year for them. And they've talked about, like, to sort of get them ready for Brooklyn to be there and experience that kind of spotlight and also, quite frankly, to get better as a baseball player. He was a, he was a tremendous athlete, um, four, lettered in four sports at UCLA, but he hadn't played all that much baseball. And in, in the International League, he would throw to the wrong base. He'd you know, get hung up between bases sometimes. He was, he was still learning, learning the game. He could be pitched to in a way, meaning that you know, pitchers could sort of, they had more games under their belt and they could... They could outsmart him a little bit. Uh, he was a very intelligent player, though, and he caught on quite a bit and had a very, very strong year that year. So in so many ways, that was sort of a metaphorical spring and, a, and really laid the groundwork for all of it to come. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about baseball. At UCLA, All-American running back and kick returner, high score in basketball in what's now the Pac-12, NCAA broad jump champion, and many people think baseball was his worst sport out of the four, such that at UCLA, he only hit 100. Yeah. And when he got out of uh, college, he uh, joined the Army, World War II, 
And he refused to play on a baseball team in the Army because they were segregating white and black teams. So he really had not played much baseball. Right. He goes to the International League and he hits 350, with batting title. Like, how did he get to be so good in baseball? (laughs) Well, he did play a little bit in in junior college before UCLA. Again, just really talented. He he was also a great tennis player. Um, And his level of the track star, a lot of people don't know. His brother, Mac, finished second to Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. And had there been a 1940 Olympics, there's a very good chance Jackie Robinson would have competed um, in track for the U.S. at that. Uh, He did play 45 games for the Kansas City Monarchs between the Army and the International League, and that's where um, uh, Ricky and and Clyde Sukeforth, the scout, came and and found him there. Uh, But he he was a raw player, you know. I mean, he had great hand-eye coordination. One of the stories, this is later in life, of him playing golf. Um, and it was a, a great friend of Jackie, the man named Tom Volante, who I got to know really well. Um, and he said when he first went out in the golf course, Jackie, like, just, you know, terrible swing and not, you know, he had, just hadn't played golf. But you could just see him get better, you know, week to week and week, and suddenly he's shooting in the 90s, then he's shooting in the 80s, then he's shooting in the 70s. He was just extremely talented. So um, as soon as he got a little bit of game time under his, under his belt, he, you know, he really flowered as a baseball player. Mm-hmm. Now, your book opens chapter one with an interesting angle. It's entirely about Jackie Robinson's batting stance. And Costia's really good with words. Among other things, he says, you saw him in the batter's box. He had, quote, a strong feeling of implacable, quote, a kind of directed menace and a body like, quote, a sculpted pillar how did you decide that's the right way to open this book, talking about his batting stance? Well, two, two reasons. One is it was perhaps the most imitated stance in the world in those days because Jackie was the guy. And again, among the African-American community, among the white community in Brooklyn, people wanted to stand up there like Jackie. You know? And you, you, you get it also with people limping around the bases like Mickey Mantle, Yankee fans, and, and stuff like that, or, or trying to stand like Musil in St. Louis. But, but Jackie's stance um, was something that really captured people's uh, attention. And then I guess, I, I guess I'm one for metaphor, because it was also his stance in the world, you know, and, and how he approached things. Um, and he was, he was extremely solid, extremely um, focused, uh, in, in his approach to, to life and in his approach to what he did, and certainly in his approach to the, to, to the game. And he was, you know, you looked in, if you think about a pitcher, and you're looking in at somebody with, with an uncommon amount of, of determination. Jackie didn't necessarily always look like he was, you know, having a blast out there. Not that he didn't like it, but he wasn't necessarily out there to have fun. He was out there to get something done. And I felt that that reflected. The other thing I will say, he was also really strong. Uh, he, he was a, essentially a football player's body. And, and so to see that there was also, you know, part, part of what played into seeing Jackie on the field. Mm-hmm. Now, that first year in Montreal, obviously it's a team in Canada, but they, every team they played against was an American team. This is in the Jim Crow era. And, and therefore, when they're on the road or sometimes even at home, there's catcalls from the dugout, racist taunts, all that kind of stuff. Was there ever a time in Montreal, like there was a year later in Brooklyn, when he nearly lost it? When, when the pledge he had made to Branch Rickey to turn the other cheek, not retaliate, 
when he said, I just can't do this anymore. I've got to retaliate. Was there, was there a moment like that in, in Montreal? Um, th there was, I, don't, I wouldn't say that he wanted to retaliate, but so for the most part in Montreal and in Canada, there was certainly racial tension that more along religious lines um, or, or French English in Montreal. The black-white divide just wasn't, that's not to say there wasn't racism, but it wasn't the, the touch point, obviously, that it was in the United States. Uh, when they were in Baltimore early in the season, that was a, a really, and they really, it, it was difficult treatment, and it was very tough for Rachel, who had grown up in Pasadena. Um, and Jackie had been exposed to segregation a little bit through sports and going around. Rachel really hadn't. Um, she hadn't, you know, when she saw the first whites-only bathroom in, when they came to, to Florida with sort of a shock, you know, I mean, and there wasn't quite the media that talked about it away. So it was a little bit of a point of discovery that there was this level of, of hate and discrimination out there. And it, and it was hard. I mean, she, she cried in her room. They, of course, couldn't stay with the team in most places. Um, and that was early on, and that was a difficult thing. But, but she sort of, they, they came together, and he, and he had a moment of thinking about giving it up. And then the, the, the other time with actually towards the end of that year, they played Louisville in what was called the Little World Series, um, uh, for the Minor League World Series. And they went down to Louisville, and the, the, it was Jim Crow stands, as you say, and really, really hard, vicious treatment. Jackie did not respond well in, on the field. It was the, it was the first time, and one of the only times, that, that it really affected him at, at the plate and, and in the field. Um, and he was a little scared. <laughs> he was a little... And he... And he said exactly, he didn't know if, he was, if it was worth it. Is it worth it to go on? It wasn't that he, he necessarily wanted to fight back. Um, and what, what Branch Rickey had a saying that uh, Mel Jones, who was the general manager of the Royal, took from Branch Rickey, and that was sit in the boat. Just sit in the boat, Jackie. You're going to get through. And the metaphor, again, was we're, we're traveling through these, this stormy weather, and we're going to just sit down, and we're going to get there, and we're going to be there. Um, and, and that that's what Jackie did. He just kind of turned back and took the next at bat, went out to the field for the next inning, and got through that period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, was it Montreal where he first displayed what became his trademark in the major leagues, and that was a unique style of base running? And you see it uh, in this picture. You see it in that picture. Uh, what was it about Jackie Robinson on the bases that made him unique? Well, he was again. The football playing comes in, comes in. So he was very, he was very fast, right? But there were other guys who were fast, like Pete Reeser, who was a Dodgers player, or Cool Papa Bell from the Negro Leagues. There, there were guys out there who were of Jackie's caliber, of pure speed. He was, he was incredibly agile. Um, partly from playing football, he could move and juke and get around you. Uh, he was smart and intelligent. He was also physical, right? So you didn't necessarily want to. Pee Wee Reese was a pretty good runner, but if he ran into you, you were a pretty big guy. Not a big deal. If Jackie ran into you, you felt it, you know? Um, so it's a combination of all those things. The, the, the player who we often got compared to was, was Ty Cobb, who was also a very aggressive base runner. But the part in the book, uh, you mentioned I lead the first chapter talking about his stance, and the second chapter I lead talking about his base running. It was partly stealing bases, but it was also... Um, People told me with no exaggeration, everybody knows what it's like to be in a rundown in, on a baseball field. And it's pretty boring. You get in a rundown, the guys throw it back a couple of times, put the tag on, see you later. 
for Jackie, this was like everybody in the Dodgers dugout would get to the front, front step of the dugout, want to watch him between getting in a, in a rundown and, and trying to get out of it because he often did. Carl Erskine told me, he was a, a pitcher and teammate of Robinson, it was like watching a 12-year-old playing with 8-year-olds. And that's pretty, that's a big difference in those days, right? And that was another thing that was inspiring to sort of the kids of Brooklyn or the kids, because everybody knew running bases and playing, you know, it's tough to get out, but there's Jackie getting out of it simply by moving and, and going and, uh, you know, juking, deking his way around. So very creative and inventive as a, as a base runner. Mm-hmm. Now, the second season in your book is 1949, which was his third year in the major leagues. His first year, 47, he'd been the rookie of the year. He'd made the cover of Time magazine. 48, he basically matched his 47 numbers, such that in 47 and 48, he hit 297 and 296. Along comes 1949, he hits 342. In 47 and 48, he had 48 and 85 RBIs. In 49, he had 124 RBIs. So what caused him to take his game up several notches during his third season? Well, there are a couple of things, Talmadge. One, and you alluded to this a little bit early on, it's a part of the movie of, of 42 for those who've seen it. His first couple of years, he, he was going to, to not fight back. Um, and he really kept stuff bottled inside. Nobody in 47 and 48, no major league player was hit with a pitch more than Jackie Robinson. And that wasn't on accident, Right. Um, and he'd get hit with the pitch, and he'd get up and jog down to first base. Then he'd try to steal second base on you, but he wasn't arguing. He wasn't fighting back. He'd get spiked. He'd get run over, and he'd just put his head down and, and get through it. Um, 49, he felt he was established now, and he said to Branch Rickey, I'm, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. And in spring training that year, he said to reporters, they better be rough on me because I'm going to be rough on them. And it was sort of... Jackie un- unleashed that year. He was much more uh, aggressive, much more of a disruptor on the base path, vocally, uh, in every sense. And it showed. It allowed him to sort of come out and be the full player that he was uh, that, that season. You know, you mentioned his statistics. Just, just to put it in perspective, he hit over 340. He had more than 65 extra base hits that year. He stole more than 35 bases. No player has done that since Jackie Robinson in 1949. So it, I think people sometimes forget because obviously his skill on the baseball, baseball field is almost, you know, it's not as important, of course, as, as what he did. But people sometimes forget, like, what a dominant, dominant player he was at his peak. In 1949, he was the best baseball player alive. He was better than Musial. He was better than Kiner. He was, he was by any statistical measure, by today's advanced measure of war and all that, he was the best player alive, white, black, anything, period. And, uh, and so that, again, summer of his life, he was in full flower, incredibly famous. Uh, the All-Star game is there. He becomes, along with uh, his teammates, Newcomb and, and Campanella and others, the first uh, African-American in an All-Star game. It was held in Ebbets Field that year in 1949. So it was really a year where he sort of raised his profile to an even greater level. And it was after that season that somebody in Hollywood had the idea, let's make a Jackie Robinson movie, the story yep. of, the, of, his, of his life and his rise to the Dodgers. Who are we going to get to play Jackie Robinson? I know, Jackie Robinson. <laughs> right. It's on the cover of Life magazine. It's the star of his own movie. I mean, what led to that movie? 
Well, it was just somebody had the bright idea, kind of, as you thought, and they, they put it together fairly hastily, right? It was in January. So here's also an idea. We're just talking about his profile and what he was in 1949. But, you, you, you know, in those days, baseball players, they made perfectly good money, but they weren't crowning kings like we are today, right? So the season ends and he gets a job selling television sets from, a, uh, from an appliance store in Queens. That's his off-season job. And he does that till the end of uh, December, beginning of January, and then the, um, the, the, the idea came to make the Jackie Robinson story, and they had an actress named Ruby Dee, uh, who was going to play Rachel. Um, and they brought him out to Hollywood. Uh, and, and Jackie was, was, you know, embraced it. He found it a little bit challenging to have to remember the lines. It's a pretty straight, you know, it's hastily put together. And if you watch it today, it, it has sort of a certain charm, and it's good to see it. But it, it, it feels like it was hastily put together sometimes. Um, Anyway, he, he, so he went and did it. He went out there for just about six weeks or so and, and, and made the movie. It was, it was right at the time when, when Sharon was, was born. Um, and again, like just, just shows his... They, basically, people felt, if we put the Jackie Robinson story out there, people are going to come and watch it because of his name and profile. And pretty much they were right. Mm-hmm. Now, also in the 1949 season was the first time... Keep in mind, this is his third year in the major leagues. He's a star... It's the first time there's a black ball player on the opposing team. Yeah. And so what, what's your explanation? I mean, here he is. He leads the Dodgers to the, to the World Series in 1947. He's a rookie of the year. Great stats in 48. Why did it take so long for the other teams? Because, you know, Branch Rickey famously said, oh, he's, he wanted to integrate and all this religious, wonderful, moral reasons. He also wanted the Dodgers to win the pennant. And he thought with Jackie Robinson in the starting lineup, they were going to do that. And so did Leo DeRusher. So what took people so long to say, we're going to be a better baseball team if we get these really great black ball players out of the Negro Leagues? Yeah, it's a good, and that, you know, people sometimes say, oh, what did you learn in, the, in, in doing this book? And I feel like, you know, I knew a lot about the Robinson story and you sort of pick up all these little treasures or you come across things along the way. It's kind of how it happened. And that notion that, it wasn't until just before the All-Star break in 1949, um, playing the Giants in Monte Urban, that the first time he stood in a, in a major league stadium in a game that there was another black player on, on, the, on the opposing team. That, that, that's kind of amazing because we know that in 47, Larry Doby came in for the Cleveland Indians, so there was a, a second black player in the league. And just that was, by the way, something that, that Branch Rickey and Bill Beck, who ran the uh, Cleveland in those days talked about they didn't want it to be that the National League with the African-American League with a black player played and the <laughs> American League would not. So that was a calculated move that it would be an American League team to bring someone in. I think that it just took people a little bit, as you're saying, you know, there's a, there's a whole pool of talent. All of a sudden you have these great athletes and great players who can come and play. The, the Dodgers were very disciplined in bringing that talent in right away when they had, had Robinson on the team. They had Campanella in the system. They had Newcomb in the system. Um, Jim Gillian, Dan Bankhead. Not everybody worked out, right? Some guys made it, some guys didn't. You still had to be out on the field, but a lot of great, great players. Um, if you look at sort of the MVP race from 1949 to about 59, I think you know, nine of the 11 or something were, were black players, right? It shows that, it just shows what a wealth of talent there was. And for the most part, and Willie Mays, I think I have this in the book, made the, made the point. If you notice, the teams that are bringing in more black players tend to win more games. And that was true because they just had more, 
um, they had a greater pool of talent to pick, you know, the, the larger, larger group of people to, to choose from. So the Giants, are, the, the Dodgers were at the forefront of it. The Giants also, as I mentioned, Monty Irvin, Willie Mays. Uh, Milwaukee was, was pretty, pretty good. Obviously, Hank Aaron um, and, and other players. Um, Cleveland, Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, as I mentioned. The Yankees are the one exception um, that never they, – they, they had Elston Howard, who had kind of a part-time role, and he took a few years to come, come in. Robinson was actually pretty outspoken uh, about the, the Yankees' failure to be um, quicker on that. They were the one team that didn't, didn't rush to integrate and was still obviously very successful. Um, you know, it's just – when Branch Rickey – when they voted whether or not to integrate baseball, the owners – voted 15 to 1 against, Branch Rickey being the one who voted for. And Branch said, okay, 15 to 1 against, I'm doing it anyway. Right? So, so much for the vote, I don't care what you say. But So there were 15 owners who said no. So you're changing a culture, and it just doesn't happen overnight. It seems obvious sometimes in retrospect, what do you mean? Go, bring these guys in, play, go. But um, yeah, the guys were just, you know, could be a little slow to get there. Mm-hmm. Now, the, during the Dodger years, the, guys, the guy who called the game on the radio, the games, was Red Barber, Hall of Fame. You probably uh, listened to him on NPR the last several years of his life. He had what I think is the greatest quote, and to me it epitomizes what's conveyed in that wonderful portrait that Harlan has. Red Barber said, there was no possible response to Jackie Robinson other than respect. So why was that universally true, that just being in his presence, grasping his temperament, the day-to-day encounters, everyone said, you got to respect him. Put that into words. Yeah, I mean, it, honestly, it goes a little bit to the, the title that I, uh, of true. Uh, his, his commitment, his sort of unflinching ability to be, to be Jackie Robinson. He, he was aware right from the beginning or basically from the Montreal years that he was Jackie Robinson, meaning that he was the man, the person himself, but he also represented something. And, and the what hopes he, of 14 million people on his shoulders. Right. I mean, that, that's a good point, just as a quick aside. Obviously, he, he had to deal with the pressure of people who were very much against him, the segregationists who didn't want him to succeed and all that. But what, the quote you just said was from uh, one of the great African-American newspapers, I think with the Pittsburgh Courier, um, in those days. And they were saying that. You have 14 million people. Imagine that pressure, right? Even for the people who are rooting for you. My God. So I think that ball players and people around the game, like Red Barber, they saw what he dealt with every day. And ha- imagine just how hard it is to be a professional athlete if, if there's none of that, right? But every single day, every move that he made, every time he came up, he had this upon him. And his dedication to the way he played baseball and his respect for the game and for the people around him, it's sort of what engendered that, what turned, made Pee Wee Reese with a huge admirer. Like all the teammates just saw, you know, and he worked really hard. He learned to play different positions. He didn't, he, there was no prima donna in him at all when it came to that. He was, um, and he was respectful of, of everybody. One of the things he did, so Barber, um, grew up in Florida and had grown up in a, in a segregated environment, had gone to school in a segregated environment, had never called or been around an integrated team, of course. And he was initially a little wary if he could do it. He kind of came around quickly, and then as soon as he met Robinson, um, it came over, as you said. But 
Jackie never sort of held out against him. He, 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 he opened the door. He said, if, you're, if, you're, if your eyes are open now, come on in. Let's, let's do this together. He was very appreciative of, of Red Barber. Barber was appreciative of him. So there's a lot to Jackie's personality and his approach that sort of just commanded a level of respect. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the most compelling parts of your book is the way that Jackie Robinson impacted the lives of so many white people, particularly Jews uh, in Brooklyn, that there was this incredible affinity and you ran those people down and they, they told you about it. So how'd you find those people who, you know, decades later, a half century later, were still talking about how watching him as a child had been such a, so impactful? Yeah, well, one of the key figures there was a man named Ira Glasser, who, um, and he, he became uh, executive director of the ACLU for about 25 years. And I first got to know Ira many years ago. He would be on firing line with William F. Buckley, for those who might remember that show. Um, and they, they are, in the way it happened in those days, they had different opinions and they argued, but they respected one another. I hear you, I disagree, I hear you, I disagree, right? The, the conservative and, and the, and the lib, civil liberties guy. And it came upon during that time that um, Ira Glasser learned that Buckley had never been to a baseball game and never ridden the subway. So he's like, what are you talking about? Ira, the Brooklyn kid, come on. We're taking the subway, we're going to see the Mets. And I got wind of this through some people I knew and went and did a piece for the New Yorker, Talk of the Town, on Ira and Buckley going to this first game together. Um, and it was a great thing, and it was this, you know, really, really nice event. So I kind of stayed in touch with Ira over the years in my time at Sports Illustrated. And he, so again, he went on to his life as a, a white kid, a non-religious Jew. He was culturally Jewish, but he wasn't particularly practicing. Um, and he would say then, as he'd say right now, he's in his 80s, and he'd say the reason he went into his career and the reason that he uh, followed this was because of watching Jackie Robinson play. And he, when he got to the ACLU, or the first actually the NYCLU, he noticed that there were a lot of Dodger fans in his cohort. And he, his theory is that there was sort of a, if you're a 9 or 10-year-old kid and you're living in Brooklyn, of course it's not segregated, but it's sort of self-segregated. Brooklyn was nothing like it is today. So you lived in sort of the white Jewish neighborhood or the Irish neighborhood or the Catholic neighborhood or the black neighborhood. But you'd go all, you'd go to school and to the store and everything and basically just see people who look like you, right? And it wasn't taught in school. Segregation was not explicitly taught. There wasn't really a way to get your, to learn about it. And so then when you went to the stadium and now a white family and a black family are sitting next to each other. And you're cheering for the same team. You're embracing whether Jackie hits a home run or whether it's Duke Snyder or Pee Wee Reese or Roy Campanelli. You're cheering for the Dodgers, not for a particular person's ethnicity. Um, and that broke down so many barriers. He was, you know, was there a more integrated place than Ebbets Field in the late 40s in this country? Maybe not. Um, and then listening to Red Barber as well, when Barber would describe hey, we're going to St. Louis, and all the team, you know, came over from the Chase Hotel, except for Robinson, or then later Campanella and Newcomb, they had to stay in a different hotel. They couldn't stay in the Chase Hotel. And Ira describes to me, you know, hearing that and just being livid. You know, 10-year-old kid, what do you mean? My guy, Jackie, can't stay in that team? He said, you know, if they treat... He wasn't even consciously having sort of a righteous stance. He's like, if they, if they made, you know... Duke Snyder, 
stay somewhere else. I would have been pissed off too. And so it, it, it sort of taught him, and I'm just using him as a symbol, and many other people who I was able to speak to, a guy named Ronnie Glassman and others around there, this sort of understanding that like it wasn't, segregation and discrimination just wasn't right. And, and it, so it had that huge impact. And none of it would have been possible, I'd say, if, if it wasn't so much fun and exciting also to watch Jackie Robinson and watch the Dodgers. That's the way into a kid's heart, right? It's no effort to learn these things when that's your guy and you're winning the pennant and he's stealing another base and hitting another home run. So um, I was able to sort of get in there and that group of people were, were definitely an important part of, of, of Jackie's impact. Now, the third season that you cover is 1956. That's his last year as a player. He's 38 years old. He bats 275. He only plays in 117 games. Keep in mind, in those years, players signed one-year contracts. So to sign for the 1956 season, he had to take a pay cut from 35000 down to 31500 He had a tense, unhappy relationship with the Dodger manager, Walt Alston. Branch Rickey had left the Dodgers in 1950. So what was Robinson's stature as a player during his final season? It's a really good question. And I think the reason why I... I chose this year as I was sort of beginning to, to formulate it, and again, in the autumn, you mentioned his statistics in 56, which were far off his peak statistics, but much better than he was in 1955. 55 was a famous year for Dodger fans. It's the one year they beat the Yankees. Very difficult year from a personal statistic and playing time for Jackie Robinson. Um, his body had begun to break down. He didn't even play in Game 7 of the 1955 World Series. So there was this sort of um, this valiant stand about I'm not going gently, like a little bit of, of an effort of will in 1956. He was going to prove that he was an important and, and integral member of the Dodgers. And he had some huge games late in the year. They would not have made the World Series without him. Um, and in, in game six of that 1956 World Series, the day after Don Larson pitches his perfect game, the the best pitch game in World Series history uh, in, in 1956. The next day, the Dodgers and Yankees are playing to a, they play to a nothing-nothing tie into the 10th inning. Jackie Robinson drives in the game-winning run, his last hit of his, of his career. Um, his stature was one of, uh, you know, he had great respect, but he also, I mean, there's a scene in the book of, of Lou Burdett of the Braves really riding him. Um, he'd gained some weight. People, people would, like, ride him a little bit for that or, or, or make fun of him. Um, and he was a proud man. He didn't like that. Not too proud, though, to get a whole bunch of different gloves and play whatever position was needed. Not too proud to, if Campanella didn't have his gear on, run out and warm up the pitcher before the inning. Jackie Robinson at age 38. I got it, guys. No problem. Um, and so he, he was, a, you know, he was a player really in his twilight and he was beginning to think about, um, life after baseball. He, he knew his body was, was kind of breaking down and, and he was at the end. Well, one of the things that really kind of choked me up was during that last season, the way he reached out and mentored young players. I grew up as a kid in Houston. Houston Co. 45s came to town 1962 became the Astros in 65. Anyway, the star player at third base was Bob Aspromonte. Bob Aspromonte was an 18-year-old rookie 
on the 1956 Dodgers, white Italian guy, Jackie Robinson, tell a story about that relationship. You know, he was a, another great guy who I was able to get in touch with and spent, spent a good time talking with Bob. So he, um, just to set the stage, he, he went to Lafayette High School, same high school as Sandy Koufax went, Bob Aspermanty did, in Brooklyn. So when he goes to play for the Dodgers that first day, he's waking up in the room with a kid, and he's like, see you later, Ma, and goes over <laughs> and plays for the Dodgers, you know. Be home by five, what's for dinner? Um, uh, and so he goes out, literally, and goes to the local ballpark, and, and he's a Dodger, and, and he, you know, uh, Austin's like, go take infield. So now he has this 18-year-old kid taking infield uh, with Pee Reese and Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges playing first base. Oh, my God. Robinson sees him, and he comes over, and he says, hey, man, that, that glove is too big. Uh, Esmani was he did, did become a third baseman, but he was playing middle infield at that moment, second and, and short. Um, and Robinson says, use mine. But, you know, as baseball players know, middle infielders tend to use a, a much smaller glove. And even by that... Um, Robinson's really small. Joe Morgan's also, by the way, really, really small glove. Um, but anyway, uh, he used this little glove, and he gave to, to Aspermani. He said, here, try this. And Aspermani, feeling the ball, it's getting rid of it quickly, doing double play drills, all that. And he sees it's much easier, and whatever reason, he hadn't known that yet. And the drill comes to the end, and he goes to give the glove back to Jackie Robinson. Robinson says, no, you keep it. And so Aspermani, then he actually went down to the minors for a few weeks before coming back up to the end of the season for the Dodgers. And he's got Jackie Robinson's glove. And the impact that that made on him, and then later the team had a trip to Japan, um, sort of a goodwill trip that, that Robinson was on, and Bob Aspermani was, was with him. The impact that Robinson had on, on him, just seeing him and seeing his sort of, the way he went about things, his generosity was a lasting thing in Bob's life. Well, another aspect of generosity while he's at this senior status is the way he interacted with the other black ball players, not only on the Dodgers, but, uh, but other teams. Talk about the relationship he had with Hank Aaron. Yeah, I mean, his, his Aaron used to, at times when they would travel up from the South, so they overlapped for a couple of years um, towards the end of the career. Uh, Aaron was coming on his way to being the best player in the league, was still a young player, and they would, would room together sometimes. Um, in those days, you'd come up from spring training teams and sort of work your way north um, and play games, exhibition games along the way and, and kind of barnstorm. Um, and and it, Aaron would, would notice the way Robinson was, how he couldn't really go out because of his celebrity, not, not because of danger at this point, but really just because of his celebrity was so much so he would just sort of stay in and, like, play cards. Uh, Robinson was a big cards player and talk about baseball, talk all the time about what was going to happen the next day, what had happened, uh, getting ready for the season, nuance of the baseball. And, and Aaron drew a lot from that, that response, uh, from that approach, and just sort of stayed an admirer of Robinson's with at the funeral, of course. And until uh, Aaron's death, we just lost him about a year and a half ago, I want to say, um, had, uh, Aaron had pictures of Jackie Robinson in his living room in his house uh, because of what he meant. Aaron saw very clearly, and Aaron, of course, and that generation of, of black ball player had the, plenty of racism and for years to go to, to deal with. But he, he saw sort of the special intensity of what Robinson had gone through and, and talked about how if, if he could do that, if he could be that person, well, I can too, and, and others can be. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, a huge impact on, on Aaron and on, on a whole sort of, you know, uh, generation of, of black players. Now, the final season is really the last year of his life, but it's kind of the post-baseball. So his last year is 56. He dies in 72, 16-year period. And with each year, he becomes more and more of a figure in the rising American civil rights movement. Yep. So talk about his impact on the movement, his relationship with Martin Luther King, how active he was. Yeah, so he... He and we talked about this a little bit last night. Um, you know, where how he was out of the, he was kind of out of baseball basically after the moment he left. He initially had wanted to get a job managing, and that didn't come around. Get offered, he didn't get offered a job right away, and then he became disenchanted with baseball's um, sort of slowness in, in elevating black uh, personnel in the front office throughout the team, and so he stopped going to old timers games. So he's a little bit estranged from baseball. When he went into the Hall of Fame in, in, in 1962, that was a great moment and very thankful for baseball, full of respect. But overall, it was a, a distancing. And during that time, as you say, he became he had become involved with Dr. King while still a player. Um, so just to think a little bit about where we are in American history, as we all know, but I'll just, just say it to give the clear context. In 46, Jackie Robinson is breaking into baseball, and Martin Luther King is a student at Morehouse College, Nobody's heard of Martin Luther King, getting a degree. He's a, he's a smart young man with ambition. Nobody's heard of him. 1956, Jackie played the last year. We're deep into the Montgomery bus boycott. So that shows you what those 10 years were in, in this country. And Robinson began to become more and more involved. He had a great relationship with Dr. King. Um, specifically, there, was, there were some church burnings in Georgia, and King asked Robinson to help um, uh, fundraise and rehabilitate those churches, which he did. Uh, the family, Robinson and, his, and Rachel and their kids, were at the dream speech on the dais with King beforehand. Um, and he was very involved. They had these, these jazz concerts at their home. They lived in Connecticut to raise money for civil rights. Um, and Dr. King came to them. Ella Fitzgerald, the neighbors would be like, I'm in my shower, and I feel like I hear Ella Fitzgerald singing. I look out the window, and it's Ella Fitzgerald on the lawn. Um, these incredible, incredible concerts uh, with, you know, Ralph Abernathy and, and a lot, all the sort of um, the doers and the workers in, in the movement uh, were, were around Robinson. So he's very committed. He, he had sort of the public public platform. He had a uh, a column in the New York Post for a while and then a column in, in the Afro-American papers. Um, but he was also very involved sort of in grassroots. Like he, he started uh, with one of the founding members of an all-black bank, the Freedom National Bank in Harlem, um, a low-income housing project. He, he was really about economic empowerment too. So he worked on different levels, not just using a celebrity, but also sort of on the ground trying to get jobs, give people better lives. It, it, was, it was a big... And he later on said... You know, I wanted to stay in baseball, but now I'm grateful that I didn't because it would have been sort of narrow. It, it gave me a wider, wider way to, to put my arms around this, this mm -hmm. uh, problem. And Jesse Jackson gave his eulogy at his funeral. But for my last question, really, in my mind, one of the unsung heroes in American history is Jackie's wife, Rachel, who was by his side every step of the way. She's about to turn 100 which yep. means she's outlived him by 50 years. Yep. So how important was she 
to Jackie Robinson's success. Yeah, as you see, as we've talked along, I couldn't help but mention her a few times because there's no getting around it. Just the background, you know, I, I'd, I'd always had an interest in, in Robinson. I'd covered him a bit um, and, and covered 42 and, and all that for, for Sports Illustrated. And then I wanted to do a story on Rachel, um, which I did in about 2012 or something like that. And uh, spending that time with her, that probably the book wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for that time. I spent time with her doing that story and then stayed closer and did some professional events with Sharon and, and, and with Rachel. Um, she, her, her sort of uh, strength and her ability to sort of, J- Jackie could be kind of volatile. He had like a real, I don't want to say temper, but an emotional, an emotional person. She was a little more clear-eyed, a little more focused. She, she settled him down. And she was right there. She was also very accomplished. You know, she had her nursing degree. She went on to, um, to teach and to work in public health and, and, and work at Yale. But during that time, he was in a major. She put all that aside. Like, she, she knew what a critical moment this was. Like, that this had to be the thing. You know, and, she, and her energy had to be in to support what, what they were doing there. One thing about her, which just sums her up, it was she was invited to be on the board at Yale. And she said, not unless you bring on another black person or another woman. You're not going to get a twofer from me. <laughs> and she was, she was pretty clear about stuff like that. She was very strong-willed. And what she's done, and we have Jackie Robinson Scholar here with us today, so that, that's wonderful to have. Uh, with the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which they started, uh, Rachel started, uh, within a year of, of Jackie's death, um, in grief. And they had lost their son just a year before that. A really difficult time, as everyone can imagine. They started Jackie Robinson Foundation to provide scholarship for kids to go to school and, crucially, provide mentorship through those four years. A lot, a lot of groups, and not a lot, but there were groups that would give money and then sort of say, Great, have a good time. They stayed really mentoring people um, and have, so have a graduation rate of something like 98%. And she stayed focused on that mm-hmm. from that until today. It's a thriving, expanded uh, business, business entity, the Jackie Robinson Foundation. And, and the last thing on Rachel is she was so clear-eyed that through the years, people would say, hey, let's, let's at the foundation, let's get involved in, you know, baseball's uh, hiring of minorities. Let's take a stance on this and that. And she said, no, we're not going to be that. We're going to do education, and we're going to do it as well as we can. We're going to do one thing. And, you know, she, she had a sort of sense of purpose and clear-eyed view that was invaluable to Jackie and has stayed with her. My two greatest heroes are Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson. And no one has brought Jackie to life with as much flair as Costia Kennedy does in true, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.